This is Dan Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. One thing I happen to know about our listeners is we have a lot of folks who are AI consultants or AI service providers. I also happen to know that many of the people who purchase our reports, that's just emerge.com slash reports, so you can find our wide array of strategy reports there. Many of the folks who buy those who are currently working for an enterprise, within six months or 12 months will spin out and start their own AI services firm. So maybe the, many of the folks who purchase our our reports while they're working for a big company are really kind of thinking about how they can find opportunity for themselves as a consultant. The consulting ecosystem for AI is flourishing as more and more money is going into the space and as more and more people with relevant expertise decide to strike out on their own. And here at Emerge, we do a lot to support that community. We have a program called Catalyst that's just emerge.com slash catalyst, uh, where we help AI uh, consultants and service providers mold their offerings and sell into new markets. And one of my early mentors in the AI space is actually an AI consultant from way before AI consulting was cool, a fellow by the name of Dr. Charles Martin. Those of you who are longtime listeners have heard Dr. Charles in the program. He's done consulting projects with huge companies like eBay and BlackRock um, and continues to do interesting research and interesting commercial projects in artificial intelligence. He's based out in the San Francisco Bay Area. I first connected with Charles when I lived out there myself, too. In this interview, Charles speaks to us about how AI consultants can find projects and opportunities. So if you are a service provider and you're looking at a new client, where is it that you can sort of find potential new clients that you could work with? And how can you kind of discover what to work on with new clients? How can you find those AI opportunities? If you're getting a consulting business off the ground, you already run one. Or if you work within a larger company and maybe you're simply interested in how to find opportunities within your own business, this episode should be useful. Charles, again, is a longtime mentor of mine, someone I really respect, someone whose perspective really helped to mold my opinions about AI in the early days, some four years ago when I first started talking to him, and it's an honor to be able to have him back here on the program. Charles runs Calculation Consulting, pretty easy to find him on social, pretty easy to find him online. That's where he does his consulting work so you can learn more about Charles. If you're interested in finding more AI opportunities in your business, I mentioned this in the episode two days ago because this is going to be over tomorrow, so I should say it now. Our new report called Finding AI Opportunities in Business is going to be released for something between $300 and $500 on our report page later this year, early next year. We are currently giving that report away for free before its formal release for anyone who joins Emerge Plus. So if you join Emerge Plus between now and Friday, we mentioned this initially on Tuesday on the podcast, but I want to mention it again. If you join between now and Friday, you'll get a copy of that report. You can go to emerj.com slash OP1. That's OP like opportunity. And then just the number one, emerj.com slash OP1. And you can find the page where you can grab a copy of this report for free when you join the subscription. Uh, so check out Emerge Plus at emerj.com slash OP1. It'll add some extra value to some of the insights that Charles provides here on how consultants can find. AI opportunities. And without further ado, I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I certainly had a lot of fun riffing with Charles, as I always do. Here we go. This is Charles Martin with Calculation Consulting here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Charles, we got you back again, my good man. We, we have a, a theme that we're working on here. We have a lot more listeners that are in the AI services space you might be the first, you know, AI consultant that I really learned a lot from way back in the day. And one of the things that we're sort of wondering, you know, there's a lot of people spinning out of the enterprise and now starting up their own services firms, whether they're technical people or they're focusing on AI strategy in some way. 
kind of wondering, what does it look like to get started? You know, you came from a hardcore physics background and then somehow bumbled your way into these big AI projects within companies. Feels like there's some hurdles there. What kind of advice do you have or what's the normal path for people who, you know, are, are initially getting into this? That's a good question. I actually did my postdoctoral work in AI. And when I came out to Silicon Valley, I worked with a fellow named George White, who was one of the founding scientists at Xerox Park and is featured in the movie General Magic, which is the, the very famous failed Silicon Valley startup company that basically invented what we now have as the iPhone. And he was the head of AI at Stanford. And, and I think that it, it wasn't really obvious to me until you come out to industry, you realize even back then there was a lot of AI going on. And I think getting started, you know, having like with anything, you know, the mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah, you know, you're going to find people in the industry who are already doing this. There are a lot of people here, and you know, usually you get started by working with someone in the industry who has a lot of experience. You know, this stuff has been around a long time, and there's nothing like having operational knowledge about something. Huh. You can study something in school, you can read books, but in the end. You have to have operational knowledge. You have to be inside and you have to understand what people are really doing. And so usually, you know, you, you're on a project, maybe you're on a project at a company, you join a project, you work on it for a year or so, maybe two, and then you really have deep operational knowledge and you combine that with a strong education and, you know, listening to a lot of, and I, I think one of the things that you do is really great because you try to provide that operational knowledge. You know, you talk to people on the inside and say, what's really going on? That's a critical thing because that's what businesses really want is they want to know, okay, other people are doing this. What did they do? Yeah. Obviously, hands-on work really helps with that. This this fellow, uh, White, who you'd worked under, I presume you were applying – obviously, you're a technical fellow. Some of our listeners are more on the strategy side. Some are, are technical like yourself. I presume you were solving problems with machine learning with this guy, and I, and I, I would guess that this is for Xerox. No, this was George ran Xerox Park. So yeah. the, he, my work with him back then, speech recognition. So Got voice it. XML. We're trying to find ways to do speech recognition, voice XML. Um, actually, prior to him, I actually worked at a startup with my graduate advisor son-in-law where I invented some of the first work in transductive learning for search relevance. So we were doing like AI and machine learning for search relevance, late 90s, early 2000s. I was totally green then. I had no idea what was going on. I was like fresh out of a postdoc. You know, I knew the theory, but you know what you learn in school and what you apply in practice are very, very different. Certainly, and, and, certainly, yeah. And, and I think it was just really, it's just really helpful to understand that connection. You know, to understand, look, there are not everything is linear. You know, people say, "Oh, AI is just linear regression. AI is just machine learning." No, no, it's not. There's real stuff going on. And it's tough to make that connection between what's actually happening in the research world and what actually makes its way into production. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's the same thing for more strategy or management type consulting around AI topics where it's going to be really hard for someone to go ahead and do that in earnest without some experience applying those things within a role or title that they have. It feels... It feels like, well, you, you, you'd want to maybe run some AI projects within your job at, let's say, Wells Fargo before you spin out and say, oh, you know, I can help some other firms who are assessing vendors or who are, you know, working on pulling together stakeholder groups to manage complex AI deployments. Um, it feels like just like you had to do with the technical, probably the same lessons apply on the management side. 
Absolutely. Look, the hardest part in any strategy is knowing what is and what is not possible, right? You, you have to be able to get a gauge of how long something will take, what kind of resources you need. You, you don't need to know all of it, right? Yep. If you know 70% or 60% of what's going on, that's enough. You don't need to have detailed insight, but you have to know what's possible. I mean, this is a technology space. You have to know the technology. One of the things that makes this very hard for a lot of enterprises is that you have people who have been in the technology space for 20 years. They've been in IT, the databases, front end. Maybe they've done a little analytics work. That's not what this is. And you just don't have a pulse on what's going on, what is possible and what is not. And so you can't judge what's easy and what's hard. One of my big breaks that came out here is I worked at eBay. And my first role at eBay as a consultant was actually in project management. It was not technical. I, I was not coding. I was working in product management trying to fix the customer support email routing system. And you can imagine that eBay, especially at that time, is, you know, before Amazon, before online, yeah, Walmart, yeah, yeah, Target, yeah. eBay is like a small European country. Just, it's just, you know, the scale and the tens of millions of dollars that go in just to customer support. And they were trying to build a machine learning system to route customer emails. And they just couldn't get the thing to work. And the guy running the group, luckily for me, was a special forces guy because I had trained gymnastics under a Navy SEAL. And I'm, I'm used to that kind of mentality. And I understand the culture of that. And I can work with these guys. And he said, look, you know, I know this is possible. I did it at Cisco. I know it's possible. Why can't we get it? Why isn't it working here? I want you to go into this organization and I want you to find out Who's been lying to me so I can crack their head open? That's what he said to me. Damn. I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay, I'm on it. And, I, you know, I, because he understood, look, this is possible. This should be doable. We're trying to deploy this technology. We, I've seen it work before. You guys are screwing something up. What did you screw up? And, and that's what I did. And it took me about, you know, about three months of that. All I did was talk to people and have meetings and try to figure out what was going on in this very, and we, you know, we solved it, right? We solved the problem. But, you know, you have to have some feeling of what is and is not possible and how hard things are. And you have to have people around you. You have to have that. That's what I mean by operational knowledge. And so it's very important to understand what are people actually doing in the industry? What are they actually doing? And, and you know, I think talking to people and asking, what are you guys actually doing? Makes a big difference because then you find out what they're actually doing. And yeah. Um, yeah. That's why like, like what you're doing is so critical. I listen to your podcast all the time. I want to find out what are other people actually doing. You listen to enough and you get to get an idea. You know, you go to trade shows, you go to conferences. You, yep. you know, if you go to the various AI conferences, you, this is very important also. You know, you go to these conferences. I, I do some academic work. One of the reasons that I can go to things like KDD and ICML and NIPS, I go and look at the industry presentations. I look at what people are doing. I look at what they're presenting and you talk to them and you ask, is this in production? Yeah, those are the right. those are those are the tough questions right there. That's a critical thing. I, I was brought in a couple of years ago to work on a search relevance project. You know, they have a search engine. The problem with search engines is that it's easy to put data into Elasticsearch and type in keywords, right? That's a solved problem. Right? I mean, Scott Hansen wrote the original search engine, you know, 25, 22 years ago, I think, for Google. Back then it was a hard engineering problem. Today, you know, you go on Amazon, you screw up Elasticsearch, boom, you're ready to go. The problem is showing relevant results. You have lots and lots of choices. And so the first thing I did when I joined this project 
on search relevance. And I've been working on and on in search relevance, again, since the late 90s, early 2000s. Worked at an eBay, Aardvark, Demand Media, on and on. First thing I did was I signed up to be a reviewer for the KDD conference in the applied search relevance track so I could start reviewing research articles. So already I'm six months ahead of the game of what anybody else is reading because I'm now reading the research papers that are coming out before they're even published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have some idea of what people are trying to do. Then you go to the conference and you talk to as many people as you can. I'm there to find out, like there was a great project by Home Depot. They had done this project where they're doing vector embeddings for visual search. And it was like a, it was like an applied project. And they were working at it, working with some guys at the university. And I talked about like, what did you guys do? Is this running in production? What did you actually? You go talk to them. You find out this kind of stuff is critical because then you really understand uh, what's going on in the industry. This is a highly technical field, and so those kinds of things made a huge difference in my being able to really know. Okay, what are we doing now? What do we need to do? What can we do? Let me throw this by you, Charles, because I think this is the natural next step here, which I know is got to be part of this interview, is around sort of finding, you know, an initial work and in, in projects. I think the way that we see a lot of where we're doing some work one-on-one with a number of, of smaller AI consultants around kind of clarifying value proposition and making the AI services sale without stretching the expectations beyond where they should go, but making it clear enough where somebody wants to buy. And we're seeing a lot of folks begin with their network, right? You know, I used to work at Wachovia Bank before they got bought by such and such. And, you know, I worked at Accenture before that. And I got some contacts and I'm going to see who might need such and such. Or I'm going to talk to the people who I know that are in CPG because I've got experience there. And and they're just kind of putting their feelers out. Of course, you know, it's good to have a process for hitting your own network and, and maybe building an initial set of projects you've been able to work on. But at some point, you've got to be winning enough work and and running into enough work to keep a business running. Even if you're going to be a very small kind of one-man band, or if you're going to have a small firm, even then, you're going to have to find actual projects and work for AI services. For you, that's going to be code-related stuff. For other folks, that might be strategy or other kinds of project management type things. What does it look like to actually get that chugging? Maybe you could talk about the early days of, of your own network. Maybe you did something different than that, by the way. And then what that has to mature into, because I think a lot of this is a mystery for people. No, I, I don't think that's surprising. Look, consulting is a personal business. You're going, it's not transactional. Look, I mean, if you want to be a freelance consulting, I guess you could go on like TopTal. Those guys made a lot of money, never paid off their investors, right? You go on TopTal and you can be a freelance developer and, you know, do what you're going to do and be part of that transactional. But I, you know, I always subscribe to what Peter Thiel says is that you never want to be in competition with other people. Right. Yeah. Competition is for losers. That's how he says. Look, you, <laughs> yeah, you have to if you're gonna be go into an organization and give them advice, they're hiring you. Why do people hire McKinsey? Why do they hire Boston Consulting Group? Why do they come to GLG? I was at GLG, Gerson Gerson Group, yep. big, big expert network. Why do they come? They want to know what other people are doing. They want to know what you did at other companies. That's why they hire them. Because they want to know what else they want to know. And so the only way that's the value. It's not just your technical skill. It's that operational knowledge. It's okay if you don't know someone, but you have to have done something. right? You have to have said, look, I worked on a project. Look, I, how do we win the GoDaddy project? Because right? I, I was at Demand Media. right? Demand Media, in addition to having eHow, one of the top 10 or top 20 websites in the world at one point, also had a domain name business. 
So I, I know that business. Okay, right? so you had related expertise. So they were like, oh, well, how are, how were they using machine learning? And you could kind of use that, use that natural yeah, curiosity. And, 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 yeah, being the first billion-dollar IPO since Google didn't hurt, you know. Yeah. I mean, of course, they knew, they knew we had done this. You know, they understood it. And, you know, they came to us. We didn't go to them. And I think that that's the same. You have to have – well, yeah, look, you're going to go through your alumni network. You're going to go through people that you've worked with. That's, you know, that's why you hire us. Do you find initial Absolutely. reference projects that way? I mean, you know, would you advise folks to find smaller kinds of projects with people they know, maybe even some stuff that's frankly not very well paid at all, just to be able to well, yeah, get their look, feet look, wet enough to know how this works? Or Absolutely. Look, you got, you got to jump in the game, right? You got to do what you got to do. I mean, I came out to Silicon Valley. I mean, yeah, I have a degree in physics and theoretical chemistry. I mean, unless I'm going to make nuclear weapons. You know, what am I going to do here? You know, that's my, you know, now I'm doing work, consulting work in nuclear physics, but back at, look, you, you have to take, you start off doing odd jobs. You meet people, you know, look, I uh, met old George working at a company with, you know, it's funny how I met George White because I'm not a Stanford guy. I'm a Chicago guy. And some of my clients now, you know, I meet through the Chicago alumni network, but your alumni networks are important. I was actually at this startup called NetBytel and I was sitting there reading with my girlfriend at the time. And I was reading this book. It was like late at night where they were, I'm just reading this book. And it was this book on statistical mechanics by Hill. I was reading a, the chapter on entropy because I was reviewing, you know, how entropy formulation. Remember, this is like 20 years ago. So I was reviewing this stuff, you know, to see how can I apply some of my knowledge of statistical mechanics to, to what we're doing here. And, you know, George was at the company. And he was just there and he walks by and he sees me at this book. And he goes, what are you? And I, you know, I wasn't even working at the company, right? I was just there picking her up, right? And he's like, What's with that book? I'm reading this book. He goes, that was my graduate advisor. Whoa, wild. That's, and, oh, well, then we got to talking. It's like, oh, yeah. So you have to go and meet people. It's a personal business. And you're going to rely upon your alumni network. You're going to rely upon your personal network. You're going to rely upon people who know what you have done. You have to have some wins under your belt. Yeah. And, you know, look, like anything else, you know, you might have to – you could run a podcast show. Right, you could run a show and get to know people, build up a Rolodex, or you just go knocking on doors. You know, this is sales, right? Yep, they're, it's they're, sales. A, At the end of the day, this that's is what sales. It is. Yep. They don't teach sales in school; they teach marketing. Yep. They don't teach sales. Sales is tough. You know, that's why you know have laptop will travel, have Zoom at home. You know, it's you know at Zoom can log in. I mean, that's what it is. And so, you know, uh, one of the clients I worked with, we met at a conference. It just turned out he was a Chicago alumni. We got to know the guy. He was a great guy. You know, we just were sitting around at lunch and talking. And, you know, and the other thing about this kind of work is you're going to work with a lot of people who are different than you. If you're a technical person, you're going to be working with business people. They're different, you know, they have different personalities, you know, and you're going to, if you're a, a business person, you know, you might find yourself working with Sheldon. <laughs> so look, I, I think that's just part of the sales cycle and that's just what it is, but you have to find some unique way to get yourself in the door. And if you're talking about the value proposition, look, right. Well, the other thing that's happened right now in AI is it's very niche. It's become like, you know, it used, it's, it's become now every, there are different verticals. And if you have specific domain knowledge, I'm going to give you a great example. Okay. One of the guys who I, I do this Olympic weightlifting stuff, you know, I got like a cross. You're still, you're still doing that? You're still doing that? I, I am doing it in my apartment. I oh, have, geez. I have, I'm sure, I have you're, I'm sure your neighbors set. appreciate that. I'm sure your neighbors appreciate yeah, that. I, I can't drop the weight. I've learned, first thing I learned, you know, it's very hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I can lift it about 80% where I was at. I, yeah, I can't you know, drop a snack. It goes right through the kitchen. 
But yeah, I'm still doing it. But look, one of the guys I trained with actually used to work for my accounting firm. And he was he was a strong guy, actually. He could like front squat 200 kilograms. He's very strong. But he's very smart. Very smart guy. His parents were famous scientists, but he didn't go into science. He went to accounting. And he turned out, it turned out like, you know, he was bored out of his mind doing accounting. And the guy's really smart. So I said, look, you, you know, he started going into software. And people were trying to convince him to go into Haskell or something like this, you know, some weird functional program, which is cool if you went to MIT and you do Haskell and you know a bunch of people who do Haskell. That's great. But I said, look, you didn't go to MIT. You didn't study Haskell. You're never going to get a job doing Haskell. What you need to do is figure out how to leverage your accounting background with data. And do some data science with your accounting background. So he got a consulting gig. He got a, like a low-paying consulting gig at Google as a consultant, you know, through one of these, you know, tier firms, you know. Yep. Did that for a while. Learned what Google was doing. Became a master of Google Sheets. Now we think he's like pulling 250K salary plus RSUs. And he's hmm. probably the top guy in the valley in terms of accounting and data science. Because he's the only one who really knows how to code. He really understands how to code. He understands all the Google stuff. You know, he leveraged his, he, he's doing something very unique. There aren't many accountants who really understand accounting because he did years of accounting, right? Worked at a big accounting firm, then moved into software. So he has a very unique skill set. Yeah, and with that okay, Google, okay. and with the Google name, you know, maybe he made, I don't know, 60, 80 bucks an hour at Google. I don't know. Something, you know, you got to understand Silicon Valley is a crazy place. So that might be a good, like you're in Columbus, Ohio, that might be good out here. That's almost, you're not going to survive. It's, out me, here on that it's meaningless, meaningless sums of money. Absolutely meaningless. Well, I mean, you know, when you pay fifty thousand dollars a year in rent, you're not going to survive on sixty. Oh bucks an hour. yeah, no, no, so, it's meaningless. Yeah, but it gets you in the door. He's got the Google name. He's got the accounting background. I expect I'll be working for him in five years. You know, the guy is huh. just really smart, but he really figured out like how to leverage those skill sets in a unique space. Yeah, let me let me see. I'm, I'm going to try to get one take home message from this, Charles, and then get into our last question. But here's my here's it. my clarification of the take home on this one is it seems like you know for you, and, and this makes a lot of logical sense, but I think it's worthwhile to pause on this. You're a guy who's been doing this for way since way before AI consulting was cool. You're, you're essentially saying, look. You're going to have experience that lets you know either some some unique combination of experience or experience in a sector that other people really want to understand because something's new. You know, if you've if you've deployed some kind of legal document search and discovery program for you know a big financial services firm, you know it's not like you're the only person that's ever done that, but. There's going to be other companies that want to know how that even works because they, they haven't looked at any of the vendors. They haven't run into those problems. They haven't seen what other people did well or didn't do well. What you seem to be saying, I mean, you mentioned your, your example with experience with search. You, you were just talking about web search and you had experience there and then we're able to leverage that with other, other firms. It, it sounds like, you know, finding those anchor projects that give you that magic sauce that you're talking about with McKinsey, which is what are other smart people doing? When you can find a pocket where you're now you're holding the key to some of that, now that's going to be what can kind of roll a snowball of business for you and create some good conversations and 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 potential pipeline. It, it feels like that's a strong take home. Is there anything you would want to do for a caveat with that, Charles? Yeah, look, I would say, look, you know, you're, you're trying to find some unique space. This is a data oriented space, right? So we're talking about data, right? You talk about accounting, you talk about documents, you're talking about data. And you're trying to find a space that's not too crowded. You know, you want to get into a space before everybody else is in it. Yeah. You don't want to be competing with 10,000 other people because the bottom's going to fall out. 
And this is what's actually happened in the industry is that, you know, the bottom falls out. And so companies come in, they have limited budgets, they hire consultants that aren't very expensive, projects don't go very well, then they wonder what happened. Like, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. You know, yeah. you want to be in a space where you're kind of new. There's not a lot of people in it, but there still has to be some traffic, right? And, and where you can stand out. And that business operational knowledge, don't discount. That's very, that's critical to have. Yeah. You, know, you need to be able, of course, you need to be able to leverage it with technical skill. You have to be able to, to say, look, we're, this is how the technology works in this space. This is what is and is not possible. This is how you get it done. That's what people want to know. Yep. Yeah. So again, having that unique enough value prop, it's, it's unique, but there's still enough demand for it. And also having project experience that gives you that keys to the kingdom of, hey, I know what smart folks are doing with X, whether it's AI for this, AI for that, deploying this kind of AI application. That's going to be just like it was for you, potentially what makes other people say, well, I have to work with this person because we don't want to make the same mistakes. We want to leverage other people's experience. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you want to work in a big place. I mean, you want to go someplace where people have done real things that are fairly complicated and you want to do the things that everybody else is doing. So you have some yep. idea that, you know, that's those things matter. It's, you know, it's not just branding. Like yep. if you say, look, I worked at Google or I worked at eBay. That's not just branding. It's because they're solving problems. And frequently, you know, you go to a big place like an eBay or a Google or an Amazon, they're going to be five years ahead of everybody else. Oh, yeah. Easily, easily, easily. So, you know, his work at Google, he's now. The next five, 10 years, they're all going to be trying to play catch up. So you're yep. way out in front. And you yeah. want to, you want to have one of my business clients always says to me, you know, you want to have the wind behind your back. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Makes sense. Hopefully for those of you tuned in, you know, finding those initial anchor projects through your own network, distilling and figuring out where your experience overlaps, including relevant business experience, as Charles has talked about here, and also being able to roll that snowball of really rich experience in a pocket of a space that makes other people say, wow, I want to know what you learned there because that's really, really important. Last little thing on this interview point here, Charles, is around what happens when you find those potential prospects. So I, I can imagine you know, getting a, an AI services business off the ground. We have plenty of you know, I was telling you before we started recording here, we have a bunch of reports at uh, just emerge.com slash reports as reports on ROI. I know you read that one. And we've got a, a number of others on, on various topics from deploying AI projects to et cetera, all from kind of a market research perspective. A lot of the enterprise people that buy these things spin off and they start consulting businesses. They step into, you know, a prospect who says, oh, well, you know, we might need an AI strategy for whatever our insurance company or, oh, we might be picking the right vendor for, you know, this chatbot project or something. But they'll step into these projects and kind of know right off the bat that what the expectations are, are just really not realistic. That the folks who are kind of bringing them in for these early conversations might might not necessarily have kind of the right idea of where AI fits into their business. So do you really kind of school them and maybe run the risk of them saying, no, 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 we just want this thing that we want? Or do you, to some degree, run with their intuition and what they pulled you in for and find a way to feed them the medicine with the honey, if you will, because you know you have to work within the bounding box of their expectations? How do you balance that, Charles? I know this is a real art and science. You've seen a lot of this. What's that process like? Look, here's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm, ever, I'm, I'm uh, buckling my seatbelt right now. You ever go to Alaska? <laughs> never been. Alaska? I've actually, I've actually never been. It's very nice. We went for the KDD 2019 conference. Right, it was on fire. It's kind of scary. The climate change is a scary thing, but 
we went there and you, you kind of you you go up and down the coast of Alaska and they've got these signs. Got these there's one through the Cook Creek boys who came up to Alaska. Five guys came up to Alaska. They found ten million dollars in gold. Right? Look, a lot of people came to Alaska. They didn't find any gold. People who found the gold. They got a sign on the freeway because they found gold. When you go into a new client, you're basically mining for gold. You might find it. You might not. And if you find it, it's a big win. I've had clients who come in, demand media, 500% increase in revenue. I have other clients. We made a baby name finder. I made a baby name finder I wrote in six hours sitting at Starbucks. I increased revenue for them by 40%. 40%. So I've had other clients who come in. I thought it was a good project. Looked easy, looked like straightforward. You get into it and you realize, uh-oh, something's wrong. You know, like, uh, oh boy. And you're like, okay, now I got to try to salvage this. And you have to remember that you're in a relationship with your client and your job is to make your client look good. In particular, you're usually working with a CTO or a project manager and your job is to make them look good. That is your primary goal is to make them look good. Now, you have to ask yourself, does it matter if this thing succeeds or fails? Your job is not to succeed or fail. Your job is to make that person look good. Whoa. If oh, they, man. Right? Your job is to make them a winner. That's what you're there to do. You're there to make them a winner. So you have to ask yourself, okay, look, there are projects that you get into and the data just doesn't do it. It's just not there. Yeah, yeah exactly. No matter how you tweak it or, or twist it, you're not going to do better than whatever darn software you already have. It's just not there. Now you got an issue. Okay. First of all, you got, you got a couple problems. First of all, you've got to make the other person Look, you're, you're in an organization. Organizations, you're kind of there to fail for them, right? In some sense, you've got to take the blame. That's what you do. That's what they're doing. They're outsourcing the risk to you. You take the blame. You usually end up taking the hit. Oh, I was the consultant. It wasn't my fault. It was the consultant's fault. That's kind of what you're there to do. And when they win, oh, it wasn't the consultant. It was me. Right? That, that's kind of what you're there to do. That's why you, that's why you charge them. That's why, that's why you pay us, right? That's why we charge a lot. Of, like, why do you charge so much? Because this is what we're doing. You know, we're taking the risk for you. And and you realize that. Look, we've had projects. You go in, you get halfway in, and you're like, oh boy. And then the client's going to come back and say, well, you know, this isn't really going the way we planned. We're only going to pay you half as much. We're going to cut the price in half because we're just not happy with performance. And you look at your staff and you go, you know, this project is. You know, there's nothing we can do. There's just no way to make. We got to figure well, out a way to salvage this thing because I cannot, you know, back in Ohio, we call this putting a pink ribbon on a hog, right? <laughs> it's just nothing. And so look, at some point, at some point you have to go to them and say, guys, we got a problem. Here's what's going on. Here's how we solve it. You've got to think to yourself, this is very important to realize when you take on projects, you're trying to get a product to market. You're not trying to solve a scientific problem or publish a paper. So if you have a way to get that product to market and you can make the guy, the product manager or the CTO or the VP look good because you got that product to market. It doesn't really matter if the AI worked or you had to hack something into it, like a mechanical Turk or some other thing you had to do. Your job is to get the product to market and eventually get some revenue. And so that's the thing you have to always keep in mind is that it's not a research. You're not doing, even though AI is very research oriented, you have to have that mindset that I'm trying to get some product to market. And it's very important when you start off to understand, okay, 
I've got to somehow make this work. And you really have to think very hard because you're going to have no project goes smoothly. You know, you have a red, let me tell you where the red flags are. The red flag is when you go into an organization and they say, they think that you're an IT services guy and you're there to install the next version of Oracle. You know, and you're going to take two weeks to do this and two weeks to do this and two weeks to do this and two weeks to do this. And you're paid on a milestone basis. When I see projects like that in AI, I'm like, okay, I turn them down because I know that nothing ever goes that smoothly and it's going to make everybody look bad. And you're going to have, and the last thing you want to do is have a conflict over the payment that, that gets, that becomes unpleasant. And it's very important for you to be able, one of the things I tell people is that we have an idea in physics, we call it a back of the envelope calculation. Yep. And that comes from, I don't know if you ever told you this story about Enrico Fermi. Go on, which, which tale? So Enrico, when they built the atom bomb, when they built the atom bomb, you know, look, back in the, you know, in the 40s, Enrico Fermi, University of Chicago, I knew Enrico Fermi's family, by the way, at Chicago, you know, he did a little calculation. He would do these calculations to try to figure out whether the atom bomb would work or not. So when they built the atom bomb, they didn't spend months and months and months doing calculations to figure out what would work. He basically did the calculation on the back of an envelope, like a large 8 by 11 manila envelope. And he did a basic calculation and he said, okay, this looks like it's going to work. I mean, think about that, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you translate that to AI projects and client expectations? You got to build a small prototype. As soon as you come in, you have to be able to get access to the data. You have to do rapid prototyping. You have to get something that you have to have an immediate idea. Okay. And, you know, even when I, and I'll tell you something, even when I go into clients and it says in my contract, in my SOW, I need two weeks to do rapid prototyping. They don't always give it to you. Sometimes you just got to say, okay, we're going to do this. And then you go back and do the rapid prototype. You know, and you, you, they don't get it. Even if you tell them, they just, they'll, they'll, you'll tell them, oh, we're going to spend two weeks of rapid prototyping. And when you get there, they're like, no, we're not going to do this at all. We're going to do something else. Like what? <laughs> so you, you have to, an, another thing that I do sometimes is I'll take on a project just for a few hours a week. So maybe I'll do 10 hours a week with the project. And during that time, I'm basically acting as a mentor and I'm helping people. And while I'm doing that, I'm looking at projects and trying things out. And then if you could come up with something that you think is going to work, then you can pitch it. That's a really good strategy because it's, it's win-win for everyone. If you come in at like 10 hours a week, you know, you're basically the cost of a mid-level employee. It's not that expensive. You can help a bunch of people in mentoring. You can do things. And during that time, you can really explore what needs to be done. That's sometimes a very cost-effective alternative for a lot of companies who want to figure out how they're going to scope out and find a project without having to take a huge hit. Yeah, yeah. Man, so I, I can see the validity in that approach in a big way. Man, I have so so many thoughts that spin out of this based on our conversations with, with other AI services firms. But let me go with this one. You know, some of these, you brought up a great point. Your job is to make the client look good, which is, you know, for me, Charles, I mean, I've never really had a job. I mean, since I was 20, I've been running small businesses. I hope to eventually be running a larger than small business, but I just am not trying to look good. I'm actually, I'm really pretty intent on results. But obviously, you're working with big enterprise. It is what it is. That's that's the environment you're operating in. So that leads me to, you know, again, I asked you the initial question. I said, hey, sometimes you're going to go in and they'll say, oh, we're trying to pick the right vendor for a chatbot. And you just know darn well. It's just not the right place to go with AI. It's not the it's not the right first step for them. It's probably not even viable. They probably don't even have the volumes to validate that kind of a project. 
So do you pull them up into strategy land, present and splay open the options, and then settle into something that you think will actually have longer-term value for them and hopefully give you a longer-term lucrative relationship with them? Or do you just kind of grit your teeth and find the way to deliver as much value as you can? Or do you walk away? Or do you walk away? Or you walk, look. Um, What's the threshold? Remember, you have, remember, there's another issue. You have to be paid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've got to be paid. This is business. You know, when someone brings you on board, they've got to pay you. You have to pay your staff. I have to pay my subcontractors. You know, when these things happen, you have to understand you're dealing with people. We worked out a project with a civil engineering firm. We spent months just, you know, kind of doing the 10 hour a week, really trying to help them scope out what they wanted to do and working with their junior engineer. She presented this project to the senior executive. The senior executive green-lighted it. And then they come to us and say, okay, we want a pilot ready to go in five weeks. I'm like, what are you talking about? We just spent the past three months. I'm working with your staff to explain to you what you need to do. You want a pilot in five weeks. I can't give you a pilot in five weeks. What do you think about a pilot? You have to, there's just all of a sudden you're a hundred miles apart. And they have a specific idea of what they want to do. They actually brought another firm in. They try not to pay the other firm. They had an idea of how they were going to do it. And you have to make a decision. Look, is this the kind of company you want to do business with? Is this something you want to do? Do you want to take the risk? Do you want to build the product on your own nickel and take the risk that they won't pay? Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you so, might, I mean, you yeah. might be, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you are. Maybe you are. Yep. And that's fine. Look, I mean, maybe you want to do that. Maybe you're willing to take the risk. You might say, hey, I build on my own nickel. I own all the IP. Remember, if you build on your own nickel, you own the IP, or depending on how you negotiate it. Or you might be in a position where, look, this just isn't going to work out for you. Yeah. This is, I'm going to present something else to you. It's really, you have to decide What's going to happen? Look, you also are managing your own risk, right? When you go in, you say, look, if something, if things go south, you know, are you going to be able to pay your staff? Are you going to bring someone on to something and then find out, are they going to turn something else down and then find out this goes south? Is it going to be just such a negative experience for you and working with this client that you're going to burn all the bridges? This is a personal business. Yeah, yeah. So again, another important point, Charles, is that you're saying is, hey, when you go in, you should know the kinds of payment and working terms that you're even willing to say yes to. So you should you should just have your thresholds of how you work, how you're paid. Those kind of expectations should be pretty much upfront. Assuming you have that, you know, if you go into a project where you just know they don't need to be assessing or, or let's say building you know, some kind of chatbot solution. It's just a completely misguided place to start for this company. It can't possibly be a productive use of funds. Here's an important thing to realize. Look, I've worked on projects where I go in and the CEO wants to do something. Excuse me, the founder. Founder wants to do something. And the project manager is totally against it. He thinks this is the dumbest thing in the world to do. And I spend six months trying to convince the project manager, look, when you're done working with me, you'll be able to take a job at Google as a product manager and make 500K a year because you, you, you'll have one of the only guys in the industry who's worked as a PM on this stuff. And you know, you're constantly you, – you go into an organization, there are going to be people who are going to fight you and don't want to do things. They're going to push back. You have to sell them. You have to convince them it's valuable to them. There are going to be people who want to do things that you might not think are the right thing to do, but you may not be exposed to everything, every decision of why they're doing things. Yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. So you don't have the context. Where, right. No, I think the important part is to understand 
is it going to work? Like if somebody gives you a data set and says, I need to predict the price of houses in this neighborhood. And you look at this data set and you're like, there's no way I can do this. There's just not, I can't give you anything even close to this. Then you yeah, have to say to them, guys, yeah, yeah, okay. this is just not doable. But frequently what happens is that you come, and, and there are cases where someone says, I want this done in four weeks. And you're like, look, there's no way we can build this for you. It's just not do it. And yeah. they, you know, I don't know if they're trying to negotiate, you know, it's like hardball negotiations or they're trying to cut down the price, but you're like, there's just no way to do it. I just can't do it. It cannot be done. And, and look, there is some professional integrity you have to have in terms of this is what I can do. I think the harder product, and you really can, you can usually flush the project out. Like you'll know when you go in, if someone asks you to do something, it's just bananas. Now, if somebody asks you to paint their house purple, <laughs> and you go in and paint their house purple, and then their wife comes back and goes, what is this? Purple rain? I don't want a purple house. You know, in some sense, that's between him and his wife, you know? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Fault. Okay, yep, okay, Get, got it. So, But you, you can't, but if someone, you can't build a house on a foundation where the house is going to fall down. That's the difference, right? Like, you've got to be able to give some reasonable, you, you do have some credibility of what you're doing. The harder problems occur when you get into a project and everything looks good, and then you find out that there's some weird quirk in the data that you never thought of. Yeah. And you're like, what did you do? You know? Yeah. And then you get all the way in and you're like, and that's much more common that there's something screwy in the data that you just never imagined would be there because they themselves don't know it. They themselves don't know what they have. Got it. Then you need to tell me if I'm wrong, Charles, then you've got to pull back and, and you've got to be able to tell them, look, here's what we're running into. I propose we X. So given what you ultimately want to accomplish, Mr. Customer, I propose we X. And then you have to actually pull up to that 30,000, 40,000 foot view, lay out a little bit of a new map, some new sets of experiments, a new roadmap ahead and run the risk, obviously, of them nixing the project maybe. But they're going to nix it anyway because it's going to fail. Like what do you do in that instance, Charles? What happens, it's not so much that they're going to nix it because no, nobody wants their project to fail. Nobody's going to say, okay, I set this project in motion. I'm going to admit it's a failure. What happens is other people, and this is more likely what happens, other people in the organization start to discover that you're there and they start wanting a piece of you. What do you mean by that? Okay. So like you're working on a project and it's an AI project. But somebody else in the organization wants to be doing AI. And if they find out you're working on something, they're going to come in and take a look at what you're doing, and they're going to start snooping around, and they're going to look for problems. And then if there are problems, they're going to highlight those problems. They're going to bring the senior manager, all right, these guys aren't doing what they need to do. Give it to us. That happens all the time. Organizations consist of little kingdoms that fight against, little tribes that fight against each other. They're very rarely, you know, some... Big happy, they're, they're more like a real family, not a happy family, right? I think Peter Thiel says this, you know, every company is dysfunctional. Every company is dysfunctional in its own way or something like this. You know, he has this, this saying, they're going to come in, and if you can't give your guy a win, your guy or your gal a win early on, other people are going to come chomping at the bit. We, yeah. We've had cases where, God. right? Yeah, that's tough. So it's not so much about the project failing. Like projects come and go all the time. Things fail. People put things in the market, nobody buys them, like the McRib, right? You get a McRib. Nobody wants the McRib, 
Remember the McRib? I vaguely, vaguely. It was like a rib sandwich. It was like this rib sandwich from McDonald's. Look, products get put into markets all the time that people don't eat and buy, right? They don't want them. You know, new Coke, old Coke, McRib. Think that happens all the time, you know? That's normal for a company. Even when you're not, you're innovating, you still got to put new products to market. So the fact that things come and go, look, that's going to happen. That's just part of doing the business. But what you have to understand is that unless you're in a small company where you're talking about enterprises now, because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about like, you know, the VC funded firm where you're working. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. We're talking about enterprise. In a big company. Look, we've had cases where the comptroller comes in and complains. Hey, look how much these guys are making per year. And you're like, we're hourly consultants. Yeah, but we don't like how much we're paying you. So people come in and they find how much you're getting paid or they find out something's happening and they're snooping around. You know, they do this. You know, and They try to kill your projects or they come. It, this happens all the time. So more than the project failing, you're saying that you're just working in an ecosystem where the internal IT folks are going to try to challenge you and say, no, we can build it. We can do something faster. Or the comptroller is going to come in and say, hey. You know, we just looked at what you're getting paid and we just decided a reason to, to nix you. Like you're, you're almost saying that those are bigger threats than the project itself not working out. Well, yeah, you're always competing for resources with other people. So, you know, in an enterprise, your job is to help your client, your customer, your person be a champion. And you have to understand that other people aren't in the organization. They're coming after them. Right. You're going in the battle. This is like tag team wrestling. Right. They're, they're coming at you. And you have to understand this in a big organization. There's politics going on. There's fighting for resources. People are being, there's reorgs going on. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the organization that you're not privy to. You know, you want to have a successful project. I'm simply saying that you have to think, look, someone pitches an idea for something and then they bring you in to do it. You know, you don't want to make them look terrible. You don't want to go in and do some horrible job. And then they come back and go, man, you just, you know, these consultants came in and they just, they just bamboozle us, right? You don't want to do that. Honest people don't do that. What, what happens usually is the opposite. You get into the project and there's some weird thing like, okay, like there was a project we did where they wanted us to find a way to map retail data around the weather. And when there was like bad weather, they wanted to see what would happen in the retail stores. And what happened was whenever there was bad weather in the database, they had impugned the data. So all the data that we were supposed to look at to decide when the weather was bad, were people not coming in or people coming, all that data had been smoothed out so that when you gave a report to senior executives, they couldn't see these weird bips in the data. Nobody knew that, right? Nobody knew that the data had been modified. So part of the project as a consultant is like, well, I can't do anything. The data has been impugned. On the other hand, maybe it's valuable for them to know that the data has been impugned. That's something they didn't know. Maybe there's something they discovered along the way. So, you know, you have to ask yourself in a broader scope, okay, look, you've impugned the data here. We can't do anything with it. How did this happen? A good example of a case where this is very common that, you know, there's something you didn't understand. You know, very rarely when you go into a problem, do you understand everything about it? And a large part of these projects is that you're discovering things that you didn't understand. Yeah. And, and, feels like you've got to be able to think on your feet well enough to not just bring these up as problems, but say, here's what the state of affairs is, and here's the roadmap I believe we should pursue. Given where you are now, here is how you become successful. 
Yeah, here's how you here's look. How you here's, look like here's how you look like a winner. There you go. Here's how yeah. you become a winner. This is critical. Look, I mean, if you go into a fight, you know, you're going to – how does Mike Tyson say, right? You were a fighter, right? How does Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a plan until they, they get, get punched in the, in the face. face. Yep. yep. Yeah. This is the real world. And in an enterprise, things are very complicated. You find out that things are not as siloed as you want them to be. You're dealing with data from other departments. You're dealing with people from other departments. You're dealing with data that probably no one's ever looked at. You're dealing with problems. We had cases where we built a product and it worked fine. And then we go to put it into production. This company has a huge Hadoop data store. They gave us one column out of the database. Like, what what are you doing? We, we, even though everything went fine, you get all the way to the end of the project, you find out you can't put it in production. There's no way to get the data out of the database. Okay. Now what? You know, you're like, okay, now what do we do? That's why this sort of operational knowledge is so important because you have to understand, okay, how do I get into this system and figure out what they did? What's happening? That's very common, much more common than you think. You know, you get in, you try to get the thing, especially because look, you're working with greenfield technology. You're working with AI technologies that no one's ever used before. So when you go inside these organizations and try to get them work, you know, you're trying to put square pegs in round holes. And you're trying to prove if I get this thing running and in production in the end of the month, we're going to see some uptick in revenue. And you've got to be able to work around problems. These problems are going to occur all the time. You've got to be able to work around them. And you've got to be able to, if something pops up that looks like, okay, this whole project's going to fall apart. I mean, you might just have to leave, you know, I mean, that's, you know, things happen, but ideally you're like, okay, can I think of something else that we can do? It's very important. You have to be nimble and flexible and quick. You can't plan things out and say, I'm going to do this for the next two weeks. And then I'm going to do this for the next two weeks. And the next two weeks I'm going to do, it doesn't work. It never works. Your golden projects are the ones where you go in, you look at what's going on. You figure out, okay, I can get these guys a 35% increase in revenue in a month. You do that as quickly as you can. Revenue goes up. Everybody looks good. Now you've got some time to actually sit back and figure out what you really want to do. Yeah, yeah. So make them look good. Build enough of that trust where then you can present the roadmap and they're going to be listening as rapt as they can. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And, yeah. and look, I've been on projects where we come in within, a, within two weeks. We have 11% increase in revenue. Within a month, we have a 30% increase in revenue. And then six months later, you're just banging your head on the wall for six months. Because it's just what happens. You know, yep. it's just all the low-hanging fruit is gone. But at least you got the low-hanging fruit, and at least you're trying. And that's really critical. When I say do back-of-the-envelope calculations, look, you've got to have a feel. This is a judgment call, right? When you come in, you've seen so many different things, and you have to have a feel for, okay, I think if we do this, we can get an easy win. And the thing is, even if you pick the simplest thing possible, you've got to control the whole process. You, you have to understand, not only do you have to do the easiest thing, you've got to get into production, you've got to get it monitored, you've got to get it tracked. You've you got to think about the whole production pipeline. Because you can come in with an idea that you can dream up in five minutes, a data science, a very simple idea, a five-minute idea that it should work. And it might take you six months to get into production. Yeah, It might never go into production. People might put it into production and then screw it up. You know, and they, they don't put it in the way it's supposed to. They do something crazy. You did everything right, but downstream, it went to somebody else. That's the thing about big enterprises. You don't have control over the whole process. You're in the factory. You go into the factory. You put something on the factory line. All the way on the other side of the factory, something happened. You have no idea what happened. Yeah. Jeez. Well, again, no holds barred. 
harsh realities from Dr. Charles himself here in this episode, for those of you who are tuned in. I, I think we've got some good lessons here, Charles, in terms of what to do with unrealistic expectations, You know, what things you kind of buckle up for versus what things you just walk away from or try to convince them otherwise, how to steer things as they go wrong, knowing that they darn well are going to go wrong, just being able to be prepared for that. I think almost everybody who's tuned in and getting into AI services is going to need these lessons at some point in, in space and time. So I know we went a little bit into overtime on this one, but Charles, I always appreciate having you on the program. Thanks so much for being able to be with us here on this episode. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks again, Daniel. So that's all for this episode. Big thanks to Charles for going into overtime, as we always do when he and I have conversations on diving into what it takes for consultants to succeed. And I hope that for those of you who aren't consultants, this episode was still awfully helpful. Again, I should mention this episode was about finding opportunities. You can get our new report called Finding AI Opportunities in Business, which is a structured set of three different frameworks for finding where AI can add value into your workflows, no matter what department or what industry you work in. That new report is unreleased. It will be released for hundreds of dollars at some point at the end of the year, just like the rest of our AI strategy reports. But you can get it now free if you join Emerge Plus between today and tomorrow. So that's emerj.com slash OP1. And you can get a copy of that report with a subscription to Emerge Plus. But otherwise, that's all for mentioning the report. I've had to mention it twice here because it's over tomorrow. So please forgive me for that. But otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And be sure to stay tuned on the newsletter. If you're not already, you can just go to our homepage at Emerge subscribe to the newsletter and you'll get all the interviews as soon as they come out so we send out a newsletter every Tuesday every Thursday and if you want to get episodes like this one with Charles we have some great upcoming episodes with NVIDIA with the head of cybersecurity at the US Marine Corps we've got some fantastic guests coming up if you're not already subscribed on iTunes or Apple Podcasts be sure to do so there but also stay tuned on the newsletter it's just easy to find us at emerge.com and subscribe to the newsletter there and you'll, you'll be sure to never miss an episode I really do appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for being able to join us on this episode, and I'll catch you next Tuesday for our use case episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.